0: Part Three, Book Two of From the Founding of the City, Volume One. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. From the Foundation of the City, Volume One, by Titus Livius, translated by George Baker, Book Two, Part Three. Mucius, who afterwards got the name of Scyvola, or the left-handed, from the loss of his right hand, being thus dismissed, was followed to Rome by ambassadors from Porsena. The king had been so deeply affected by the danger to which he had been exposed in the first attempt, from which nothing had protected him but the mistake of the assailant, and by the consideration that he was to undergo the same hazard as many times as the number of the other conspirators amounted to, that he thought proper of his own accord, to offer terms of accommodation to the Romans. During the negotiation mention was made, to no purpose of the restoration of the Tarquinian family to the throne, and this proposal he made, rather because he had not been able to refuse it to the Tarquinii, than from entertaining the slightest expectation of its being accepted by the Romans. He carried the point, respecting the giving up of the lands taken from the Veientians, and compelled the Romans to submit to give hostages, if they wished to see his forces withdrawn from the geniculum. Peace being concluded on these terms, Porsena withdrew his troops from the Janiculum, and retired out of the Roman territories. To Gaius Mucius, as reward for his valor, the senate gave attractive land on either side of the Tiber, which was afterwards called the Mucian meadows. Such honor being paid to his courage, excited even the other sects to merit public distinctions a young lady called Cloelia, one of the hostages, the camp of the Eturians happened to be pitched at a small distance from the banks of the Tiber, evaded the vigilance of the guards, and at the head of a band of her companions, swam across the Tiber, threw a shower of darts discharged at them by the enemy, and restored them all in safety to their friends at Rome. When the king was informed of this, being at first highly incensed, he sent envoys to Rome, to insist on the restoration of the hostage Cloelia. As to the rest, he showed little concern. But his anger, in a little time being converted into admiration, he spoke of her exploit as superior to those of Cocles and Mucius, and declared that, as, in the case the hostage should not be given up, he would consider the treaty as broken off. So, if she should be surrendered, he would send her back to her friends in safety. Both parties behaved with honor, the Romans on their side returned the Pledge of Peace, agreeably to the treaty, and with the Etrurian king, merit found, not security only, but honors. After bestowing high compliments on the lady, he told her that he made her a present of half the hostages, with full liberty to choose such as she liked. When they were all drawn out before her, she is said to have chosen the very young boys, which was not only consonant to maiden delicacy, but, in the universal opinion of the hostages themselves, highly reasonable, that those who were of such an age, as was most liable to injury, should, in preference, be delivered out of the hands of the enemies. Peace being thus re-established, the Romans rewarded this instance of intrepidity, so uncommon in the female sex, with a mark of honor as uncommon, an equestrian statue. This was erected at the head of the sacred street. Very inconsistent with this peaceful manner in which the Etrurian king retired from the city is the practice handed down from early times and continued among other customary usages even in our own days of proclaiming at public sales that they are selling the goods of King Parsena, which custom must necessarily either have taken its rise originally during the war or it must be derived from a milder source than seems to belong to the expression which intimates that the goods for sale were taken from an enemy. Of the several accounts which have been given, this seems to be the nearest to the truth, that Porsena, on retiring from the Juniculum, made a present to the Romans of his camp, which was plentifully stored with provisions, collected from the neighboring fertile lands of Etruria, the city at that time laboring under a scarcity, in consequence of the long siege, and lest the populace, if permitted, might seize on them, as the spoil of an enemy, they were set up to sale, and called the goods of Porsena, the appellation denoting rather gratitude for the gift than an auction of the king's property, which besides never came into the power of the Romans. After he had put an end to the war with Rome, Porsena, that he might not appear to have led his troops into those countries to no purpose, sent his son Aruns, with half of his forces, to lay siege to Aurecia. The unexpectedness of the attack struck the Eurikians at first with dismay, but afterwards, having collected aid, both from the Latine states and from Cumae, they assumed such confidence as to venture an engagement in the field. At the beginning of the battle, the Etrurians rushed on so furiously that at the very onset they put the Eurikians to the rout. The cohorts from Cumae, opposing art to force, moved a little to one side, and when the enemy, in the impetuosity of their career, had passed them, faced about, and attacked their rear. By these means the Etrurians, after almost having gained the victory, were surrounded and cut to pieces. A very small part of them, their general being lost, and no place of safety nearer, made the best of their way to Rome, without arms, and in their circumstances and appearance merely like suppliants. They were kindly received and provided with lodgings. When their wounds were cured, some of them returned home, and gave an account of the hospitality and kindness which they had experienced. A great number remained at Rome, induced by the regard which they had contracted for their host and for the city. They had ground allotted to him for building houses, which was afterwards called the Tuscan Street. The next elected consuls were Publius Lucretius and Publius Valerius Publicola, for a third time, during this year ambassadors came for Porsena, for the last time, about restoring Tarquinius to the throne. The answer given to them was, that the senate would send ambassadors to the king, and accordingly, without delay, a deputation, consisting of the persons of the highest dignity among the senators, were sent with orders to acquaint him, that, it was not because their answer might not have been given in these few words, that the kings would not be admitted, that they had chosen to send a select number of their body to him, rather than to give the answer of his ambassadors at Rome, but in order that an end might be put forever to all mention of that business, and that the intercourse of mutual kindness at present subsisting between them might not be disturbed by the uneasiness which might arise to both parties if he were to request that they would be destructive of the liberty of the Roman people, and the romans, unless they chose to comply at the expense of their own ruin, must give a refusal to a person to whom they wished to refuse nothing, that the Roman people were not under regal government, but in a state of freedom, and were fully determined to open their gates to declared enemies, rather than to kings, that this was the fixed resolution of every one of them, that the liberty of the city, and the city itself, should have the same period of existence, and therefore to entreat him that if he wished the safety of Rome he would allow it to continue in its present state. The king, convinced of the importunity of interfering any farther, replied, Since this is your fixed and unalterable resolution, I shall neither tease you by a repetition of fruitless applications on the same subject, nor will I disappoint the Tarquinii by giving hopes of assistance, which they must not expect from me. Let them, whether they look for war or for quiet, seek some other residence in their exile, that there may subsist no cause of jealousy, to disturb henceforth the good understanding which I wish to maintain between you and me. To these expressions he added acts still more friendly. The hostages which remained in his possession he restored, and gave back the Veientian land, of which the Romans had been deprived by the treaty at the Janiculum. Tarquinius, finding all hopes of his restoration cut off, retired for refuge to Tusculum, to his father-in-law, Mamilius Octavius. Thus peace and confidence were firmly established between the Romans and Porsena. The next consuls were Marcus Valerius and Publius Postumius. During this year, war was carried on with success against the Sabines, and the consuls had the honor of a triumph. The Sabines, afterwards, preparing for a renewal of hostilities in a more formidable manner, to oppose them, and at the same time to guard against any sudden danger which might arise from the side of Tusculum, where, though war was not openly declared, there was reason to apprehend that it was intended. Publius Valerius, a fourth time, and Titus Lucretius a second time, were chosen consuls. In the year 250, or 502 BC, a tumult which arose among the Sabines, between the advocates for peace and those for war, was the means of transferring a considerable part of their strength to the side of the Romans. For Atta Clausus, called afterwards at Rome Appius Claudius, being zealous in favor of peaceful measures, but overpowered by the turbulent promoters of war, and unable to make head against their faction, withdrew from Regulum to Rome, accompanied by a numerous body of adherents. These were admitted to the rights of citizens, and had land assigned to them beyond the Anio. They have been called the old Claudian tribe, to distinguish them from the new members, who, coming from the same part of the country, were afterwards added to that tribe. Appius was elected to the Senate, and soon acquired a reputation among the most eminent. The consuls, in prosecution of the war, marched their army into the Sabine territories, and, after reducing the power of the enemy by wasting their lands, and afterwards in battle, to such a degree that there was no room to apprehend a renewal of hostilities in that quarter for a long time to come, returned in triumph to Rome. In the ensuing year, when Agrippa Manius and Publius Postumius were consuls, died Publius Valerius, a man universally allowed to have excelled all others, in superior talents both for war and peace, full of glory, but in such slender circumstances that he left not sufficient to defray the charges of his funeral. He was buried at the expense of the public, and the matrons went into mourning for him, as they had done for Brutus. During the same year, two of the Latin colonies, Pometia and Cora, revolted to the Aruncians, and war was undertaken against that people, a very numerous army, with which they boldly attempted to oppose the consuls, who were entering their borders, was entirely routed, and the Irunkeans compelled to make their last stand at Pometia. Nor was the carnage less after the battle was over, than during its continuance. There greater numbers slain than taken, and those who were made prisoners, were in general put to death. Nay, in the violence of their rage, which ought to have been confined to foes and arms, the enemy spared not even the hostages. 300 of whom had been formally put into their hands. During this year also, there was a triumph at Rome. The succeeding consuls, Opiter Roginius and Spurius Cassius, attacked Pometia at first by storm, afterwards by regular approaches. The Aruncans, actuated rather by implacable hatred than by any hope of success, and without waiting for a favorable opportunity, resolved to assail them, and, sallying out, armed with fire and sword, they filled every place with slaughter and conflagration, and, besides burning the machines, and killing and wounding great numbers of their enemies, were very near killing one of the consuls, which of them, writers, do not inform us, who was grievously wounded and thrown from his horse. The troops, thus foiled in their enterprise, returned to Rome, leaving the consul, whose recovery was doubtful, together with a great number of wounded. After a short interval, just sufficient for the curing of their wounds and recruiting the army, the Romans renewed their operations against Pometea with redoubled fury and augmented strength, and when they had anew completed their military works, the soldiers just being on the point of scaling the walls, the garrison capitulated. However, although the city had surrendered, the chiefs of the Aruncans were from all parts, dragged to execution, with the same degree of cruelty, as if it had been taken by assault. The other members of the colony were sold by auction, the town was demolished, and the land set up to sale. The consuls obtained a triumph, rather in consideration of their having gratified the people's resentment by severe revenge, than of the magnitude of the war, which they had brought to a conclusion. The following year, the consuls were Postumius. Cuminius and Titus Lartius, when some Sabine youths, having, through wantonness, used violence to certain courtesans at Rome, during the celebration of the public games, and a mob assembling, a scuffle ensued, which might almost be called a battle, and from this trifling cause matters seems to have taken a tendency towards a renewal of hostilities. Besides the apprehension of a war with the Sabines, there was another affair which created much uneasiness. Undoubted intelligence was received that thirty states had already formed a conspiracy at the instigation of Octavius Mamilius. While Rome remained in this perplexity, looking forward with anxious apprehension to the issue of such a perilous conjuncture, mention was made, for the first time, of creating a dictator. But in what year, or who the consuls were, or who could not be confided in, because they were of the Tarquinian faction, for that is also related, or who was the first person created dictator, we have no certain information. In the most ancient writers, however, I find it asserted that the first dictator was Titus Lartius, and that Spurius Cassius was appointed master of the horse. They chose men of consular dignity, as ordered by the law enacted concerning the creation of a dictator. For this reason, I am more induced to believe that Lartius, who was of consular dignity, and not Manius Valerius, son of Marcus, and grandson of Volesus, who had not yet been consul, was placed over the consuls, as their director and master, as even if it had been thought proper that the dictator should be chosen out of that family, they would have rather elected the father, Marcus Valerius, a man of approved merit, and of consular dignity. On this first establishment of a dictator at Rome, the populace, seeing the axes carried before them, were struck with such terror as made them more submissive to rule, for they could not now, as under the consuls, who were equal in authority, hope for protection, from one of them against the other, but prompt obedience was required of them, and in no case was there any appeal. Even the Sabines were alarmed at the appointment of a dictator by the Romans, the more so because they supposed that he had been named to act against them. They therefore sent ambassadors to treat of an accommodation, who, requesting of the dictator and senate that they would pardon the misconduct of thoughtless young men, were answered, that pardon would be granted to young men, but not to the old, who made it their constant practice to kindle one war after another. However, a negotiation was entered into for an adjustment of affairs, and it would have been concluded if the Sabines had been willing to reimburse the costs expended on the war, for that was the condition required. War was proclaimed, but still a suspension of hostilities continued during the remainder of the year. The consuls of the next year were Servius Sopicius and Manius Tullius. Nothing worth mentioning occurred. Then succeeded Titus Abutius and Gaius Vetusius in their consulate, Fidenae, was besieged, Crustumeria taken, Pryonestae revolted from the Latins, to the Romans, and a Latine war, the seeds of which had, for several years past, been growing to maturity, could not now be choked. Aulus Postumius, dictator, and Titus Albutius, master of the horse, the year 255, 497 BC, marching out a numerous army of cavalry and infantry, met the forces of the enemy at the lake Regilius, in the territory of Tusculum. And as it was known that the Tarquinii were in the army of the Latines, the rage of the Romans could not be restrained, but they insisted on engaging instantly. For this reason, too, the battle was unusually obstinate and bloody. For the generals not only performed the duty of directing everything, but exposing their own persons, mixed with the combatants, and shared the fight, and scarcely one of the principal officers of either army left the field, without being wounded, except the Roman dictator. As Postumius was encouraging and marshalling his men in the first line, Tarquinius Superbus, though now enfeebled by age, spurred on his horse furiously against him, but receiving a blow, was quickly surrounded by his own men, and carried off to a place of safety. On the other wing, Ibutius, the master of the horse, made an attack on Octavius Mamilius. Nor was his approach unobserved by the Tusculan general, who advanced in full career to meet him, and each aiming his spear at his antagonist, they encountered with such violence, that the arm of Ibutius was pierced through, and Mamilius received a wound in his breast. The latter was received by the Latines in their second line, while Ibutius, disabled by the wound in his arm from wielding a weapon, retired from the fight. The Latin general, not in the least dispirited by his wound, continued his vigorous exertions, and perceiving his men begin to give ground, sent for a cohort of Roman exiles, commanded by Lucius, the son of Tarquinius. These, fighting under the impulse of keen resentment, on account of their having been deprived of their property, and of their country, kept the battle for some time in suspense. End of Book Two, Part Three